Well, grab your Bible. We're going to go to the book of James. We are in the third installment of our series called Authentic. And, um, you know, James is talking about living an authentic life. And we've talked about this over these last three weeks, the two prior uh, prior, uh, sessions, that there's a lot of people that think James should not even be canonized in the Scripture that he sort of was missing the boat as far as the gospel of grace goes, that he didn't really have a full revelation, therefore his gospel should have been left out. I told you last week, even Martin Luther said when he first read it, uh, through the scope of his renewed fervor, uh, once you know God revealed to him, um, Romans 1, uh, 13 or whatever it was, that the just shall live by faith, he read the book of James and called it an epistle of straw. He said, there's far too much about what we have to do for God and far too little about what God has already done for us in Christ. Um, But as we start to take a look at the specifics of what James is saying, we really do find that he is complimenting uh, the gospel of grace. He's complimenting the work of Paul. He's not coming against it. In fact, we know about Paul from the times that he had uh, withstood Peter to his face, the Bible says, and just the, the way Paul was with the people he was around, that he had great respect for James. If you'll remember a couple of different times in the book of Acts, as we worked through that book on Sunday mornings, uh, that James was was sort of giving the final word on a couple of different um, you know things that were happening in the body of Christ. Remember one time they were having issues with on the on the field out in in the Gentile world. They were having issues with the Jews accepting the Gentiles because they were, you know, eating things offered to idols and things like that. So it all came back to Jerusalem and and everybody sort of had their input, but then James gave the final word and Paul, uh, uh, rather, yeah, Paul honored that and respected that. So that tells us what he felt about James. Uh, And so as we look into this a little deeper, we really do find that James is just preaching the same gospel, but from a different perspective, you might say. Um, and so uh, this is something that um, a guy named Clyde, Clyde Snodgrass, uh, I didn't make that up, <laughs> who could, right? Um, but this is what he said. He says, there is no antithesis between faith and works, meaning there's no conflict here. There's no antithesis between faith and work. Humans cannot live without acting. You cannot be without doing. You will, in other words, work. The question is, from which identity will you work? So we either work from the identity that if we don't, God's going to be angry and withhold from us, or we work from the identity that we are blessed in Christ and that the payment has been paid for us, so now we are free to live fully for other people, like the last song tonight. Uh, Once you know that you're loved completely and unconditionally, you can truly give yourself away. Uh, in an unprecedented way. And Martin Luther later on, now he did change his opinion of the book of James, by the way, uh, and he said this, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. Is that right? And so I think that if we believe we're a church of world changers, then the only way we can do that is by taking our revelation from the theoretical into the practical, right? Right? And so, uh, but again, it, it is a lot less effort than you might imagine because when that love is up on just the revelation of God's love is inside you, then you are going to reciprocate that into the lives of other people. 
And so it's a very organic thing. It's not this thing where you're thinking around, you know, sitting around thinking, man, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. Or else, uh, if you think like that, then, then you're not resting in that finished work. So with all that being said now, let's just pick it up here in James chapter 1, where we left off last week. We'll begin in verse 19, um, and this is going to be some powerful stuff, uh, so just stay with me and we'll talk through it as we go a little bit. But verse 19 says, know this, my beloved brothers, that every person, now by the way, this is the English standard version that I'm reading from tonight. I know I'll go back to the New King James here before we're done, but this is the uh, English standard, at least in my notes. So follow along if you can. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Interestingly enough, we are to be, you know, listening twice as much as we say uh, or, or, you know, or respond otherwise. So you have two ears and one mouth, so that ought to tell you something, right? <laughs> so slow to speak, slow to anger. You know, there's an old saying that says, it's best keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> right? And so when you're feeling anxious and uptight, the best thing to do is just relax, just take a deep breath, and just listen. Okay? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And you ought to, in your private time, do a word study on that word saved. It means so much more than going to heaven. It means way more than that. Uh, we are going to go to heaven someday and, and praise God. I always like to eat pie after my meal. You know what I mean? But, but eating the meal is fun, too, if you're like me, because I, I, I'm not necessarily a foodie. Uh, I just like food. Um, so the idea here is that, that when the Word of God saves your soul, your soul is your mind, your will, and emotions. That means it introduces you to your dominion, not just your citizenship. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your dominion is on the earth, right? And so it's important to, to recognize that, that the Word of God is vital to your life. And let me just say it this way, and I tweeted this the other day, uh, and, and if you're not following, following me on Twitter yet, then if you'll start following tonight, I'll give you three free sins. <laughs> and if you weren't here on Sunday, you might not understand that, but before you leave the church, at least ask what that means, okay? Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I don't even know what I was saying now. Oh, I was so excited about the three free sins for you. Uh, but what I tweeted the other day was that if you want to know the will of God, how many of you would say, I want to know the will of God for my life? I think everybody pretty much does. The way to do that is to get acquainted with the Word of God. The Word of God will tell you his will for your life. So you can say, well, you know, now that we're under grace, I don't really have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. But if you want to know the will of God, you have to get to know the word of God. You know, if, if I want uh, my physical needs met by my wife, which those are my needs, by the way, because I'm a man, uh, then I must meet her emotional needs. God loves me whether I do or not, right? But there ain't going to be no fun date nights if I don't do what I must, right? And don't get all sideways with me. I've got a license for this, right? And we have children and youth ministries for your youngsters if this is too much for them, okay? But he says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So now, again, James is getting away from um, the, the theoretical here and the philosophical and even the theological, and he's getting into the practical. Uh, this is uh, what... Uh, uh, let's see if I even have that quote. I've got a quote here from Tulian that I really uh, enjoyed, and I would like to read it to you if I can find it. How many of you hope I can find it here? Okay, here it is uh, from Tulian Chavidian. He says, Paul tends to deconstruct the gospel and show you what's in all of its elements. And that's kind of how Paul writes and teaches, right? He breaks it apart and wants you to see uh, the specifics of what the gospel truly is. In comparison now, James assumes the gospel and shows you what it does, asking, how, quote, how has the gospel changed you? Does that make sense? So how has the gospel changed you? So James is assuming... What that means is he's, he's taken for granted that you already know what Paul has written. He's assuming you understand the gospel of grace. And now he's asking you, Christian, how has it changed you? How is it continuing to change you? And what part of you still needs to be changed? So he's asking questions that cause us to be introspective, not in a judgmental way, but in a very real, pragmatic way, so we can live the life that God died uh, on the cross for us to live. Is that right? So, with all that being said, now let's, let's jump back over here. For he, verse 24, For he who looks at himself and goes away at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts... He will be blessed in his doing. See, if you don't have this understanding in your doing, your doing will be a burden. Anybody ever been there? You know, you will feel like you have to do... uh, Let let me make it simple like this, because maybe you don't all gravitate to what I'm saying. But if it's hard for you to say no, when you want to say no, you don't. You say yes, and then you lie about why you can't do it after the fact. Because you're on the phone, and what you really want to say is, you know what, I just can't do that. But you say, okay, and then you concoct a lie, right? I'm just telling you what I do. (laughs) Then you concoct a lie, oh, well, you know, I got got tied up or whatever. Because what you really feel is a burden that if you don't do what other people want you to do, they ain't going to like you no more. Now I'm preaching good, right? And so we all deal with this kind of stuff. There's a gentleman in, uh, in Arizona right now. I just had this happen, and I haven't lied yet. But I thought about it. Is that okay if I could just be honest tonight? So he's from Uganda. I've never met him. We have some mutual friends. He's a physician. He's at his son's house in, uh, in, in, in Arizona. And so... You know, our mutual friends called me, and then he had Facebooked me. And so, you know, I I talked to him, and and I I like Africans. How many have ever been to Africa? 
okay, a few of you, and some of you, uh, you know, you've met a bunch of our missionaries, and you'll meet more. Uh, Stephen Coesa will be here in, uh, in April, sometime after Easter, or maybe it's May, I can't remember, but at any rate, so I'm trying to be cordial to this guy, and I said, you know, I'd love to see you and just get to know you. He, you know, he's over in East Africa, we'll be there later this year probably, and so he sends me an email with his itinerary, and right before Easter, the week before Easter, he wants to come for seven days. Well, A, I don't have a guest room for him. B, I don't have the money to put him in a hotel. And C, I don't know this guy. And I don't have time to hang around with somebody, even if I do know you, for a week leading up to the busiest weekend of my life called Easter. All the renovations going on on both campuses. And we're going to do seven services over two days on two campuses. And I'm thinking... I should just tell this guy, you know, I'm going to be out of town. (laughs) And then the Holy Spirit said, you're going to be preaching this stuff tonight, so you might want to decide if you're going to lie about it or not. And, um, And so I'm just going to write him and say, listen, man, I love you, but I don't have anything for you and I to do together for seven days. I'm busy actually, you know, doing church stuff, you know, and... And as much as I would love to hang around and whatever, I just I can't do it. It's a bad time for me. So how many of you think I should just say that? Right? How many of you would just say that? Yeah, some of you. How many of you do not care if you say no to people whether they get mad or not? Okay, a few of you. Probably half of those hands are lying. Just talked about that. <laughs> oh man but you know it's, it, you feel it so the moment you feel that that tells us that our doing now has not has, is not a blessing but a burden and that's when we know we got the wrong motivation okay so that is a very simple little indicator and if we would just train train ourselves to say oh you know what can't do it oh man you know whatever just train yourself can't do it be honest the truth will set you free and them, and then we'll find out who our friends really are, right? Uh, and it's probably easier said than done, but I'm going to try it tomorrow when I email this guy back. How about that? <laughs> Does anybody know where I was when I stopped? 25, thank you. Uh, 26 then, okay, I finished at 25. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion is that, that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in, the, in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So essentially what James is saying is basically that the, the grace and the favor that directs our life our life will then become a reflector of that into our world and god doesn't need our good works we're not saved by good works we don't impress him with works he could care less about that and so the moment we really get a hold of that then we can turn right around and begin to take the gospel to the nations and to love people where they are in spite of their works Right, And we can start giving back that unconditional love that we have. I, I, the, the three free sins things. How many of you bought the book after Sunday? Nobody bought the book. Okay, fine. Good. I'm going to write my own book. You can buy mine. How about that? 
But the guy starts talking about how hard it is to teach frogs to fly. And, and, and he said that when you're a person who teach, teaches frogs to fly, realizing that you don't know how to fly yourself, it's a little bit precarious. You have to get a flight manual. You have to pretend you know it inside and out. You sort of have to carry yourself like you fly. You have to walk and talk like you know what flying is all about. But at the end of the day, you're teaching something that you cannot do. It's kind of like going to business school in America. You're learning how to run a business from people that can't run a business. That's why they're teaching how to run a business. In fact, most of our students today, even in high school, are learning things from people who couldn't do it in the real world. And, and all right, I should, I should, I'm going to walk that back, all right? I should say on the collegiate level, because we love teachers and we have teachers here, and I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm telling you, I for sure know people who teach business schools that don't do business. But if you want a degree, because that's what means so much to us, you're going to get that from people that don't know what they're talking about, basically. So now, let's get back to frogs flying, because I do have a point. That he equated that same scenario to the fact when he preached and pastored for 24 years, he spent so much of his time teaching people how not to sin while never really being able to pull that off himself. To the point where he got so sick of being so fake and so masked up and not himself ever because if people really know you're a sinner, then they're not going to come to your church and they won't bring their checkbook either. Then you have to put on up this cacophony that you know everything about what it means not to sin. And then what you do is you curse people into futility and frustration because they don't know why they can't figure it out, but you did. And again, I've said this before. You guys don't come here because I'm such a great theologian. You come here because I'm real, and I'll tell you that I'm not perfect. And I can't tell you how many people come up to me and say, you know what, thank God because I thought something was wrong with me. And when I was a kid, I can remember meeting pastors and never really wanting to get around them because it seemed like they could just look into my spirit and my soul, right? And I always felt like these beaming, judgmental, like, ugh, who are you? You know, does anybody know what I'm talking about? And, and I just think we have got to get past that. We've got to be honest about the fact that we are messed up people but God has used our mess and made it our message. And if we could just be real and remove the mask and encourage that way to live, we will empower a generation that will win the world for Christ. And we won't have the world running so hard from the church, but actually running to it. Amen? Because they won't feel judged and condemned by you and I. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? So now let me tell you what Titus has to say about all of this in Titus 2, 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And I, I think I accidentally put King James in here, but just bear with me. Uh, I just read that in New King James, but it's written here, and in, in, so I'm not sure what you have up there. But Okay, you're good then. It teaches us that, now watch this, the grace of God that saves us also teaches us. This is where a lot of people that shy away from teaching the truth of God's word, uh, they'll say, well, you know, if you preach grace, people are going to get into sin. Oh, no, they're not. For a lot of reasons. Number one, the Bible says the strength of sin is the law. 
But right here in Titus 2, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Somebody say, teaching us. That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So this same grace that so many people are afraid of because it causes them to lose control of people, it's the same grace that teaches us how to live fully in the covenant that we're part of, not of our own doing. I taught blood covenant for six years every semester in Bible college and have taught it in church for probably, you know, 17 years, at least once a year. And I missed it all the time thinking that I was in covenant with God. Well, technically I am, technically you are, but not directly. We are in covenant God with God through Jesus, yeah. not directly. We are Mephibosheth. He was blessed because he was Jonathan's son and Jonathan was in covenant with David we are blessed because we are you know in Christ and in Christ we are in covenant with God it's a powerful truth and so to to study that out second Kings 9 would really be a blessing to you so this grace is teaching us how to live in a way that the world could read our life and recognize that there's a way to live and that way to live is full of rest in him Verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Isn't that wonderful to know that you're not weird for no reason? You are peculiar. Anybody ever tell you that? You're a little different. Yep, and we always knew it, didn't we? Zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. So we ought to be zealous for good works. And it doesn't mean just doing stuff to do it. It means having a heart to help people. Having a heart to touch lives. Having a heart to touch nations. Uh, That's what this is all about. When we encounter God's grace, we begin to live better because we begin to believe better. When we believe that Jesus paid the price, we are now in proper agreement with the word of God and then our lives begin to turn around and begin to elevate because now we understand truly who we are. We are not rejected by God when we make mistakes, but we are embraced by God all the time based on what he did for us, not what we did for him. Whew, that excites me. I don't know about you. I've shared this verse the last two weeks, Matthew 5, 16, and I want to hit it again tonight as we move through here. But it's, Jesus said this uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, So let your, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Remember, like I've told you, and I want you to see this again tonight, you being his child, your Father, that part comes before the first part. Let your light so shine, which hasn't happened yet. That's why he's saying do it. That they may see your good works and glorify your father. Well, that means you already have a father. So he's talking to us saying, look, you're a child of God. You ought to be the happiest people on earth. You know, we don't need to be looking like death sucking on a lifesaver. That's not who we are. We are not the frozen chosen. If you're saved and you know it, your face ought to show it. You know what I mean? Well, you said we didn't have to do anything. I'm just saying that if you're saved, you ought to crack a smile once in a while. You ought to loosen up once in a while. Have some fun. Take a risk. 
You know, shake hands with a stranger without using Purell five minutes later, you know. Live a risky life. <laughs> we, ate, we ate every meal in, uh, in Burundi with Vicks in our noses. They didn't know what we were doing. But I, and that's the honest truth, you know. I mean, we're, we're not used to certain things in America. And so you do what you have to do to, to, to get through all that. But uh, I felt like we were being risky already anyway, so. So this relationship, what it does is it genders rest. When, you know, it's, it's nice to see that, that, you know, your children, when they come to your house, they rest. Whenever I go to my mom's, of course, I eat first, but... But then I always feel like resting, you know what I mean? It's a safe place. And, and that's how we ought to be. That's why some of you sleep during church. It's not that you're tired or bored. You're in a place of peace. And you, you may not have that everywhere, right? My, that's my, my pastor told me that a long time ago. He says, you know, that's why people doze off in church, really. Uh, you know, it reminds me of a story I heard one time where uh, this lady comes to church and and she says, uh, you know, they're trying to, the usher's trying to find her a seat. And she said, I'd like to sit on the front row. And he said, ma'am, you don't want to sit on the front row. Uh, our pastor's really boring, and he'll put you to sleep. So we'll get you one in the back. She goes, do you know who I am, son? And he said, no, ma'am. She said, I'm the pastor's mother. <laughs> he said, ma'am, do you know who I am? And she said, no, I don't, son. He said, good. And he laughed. <laughs> <laughs> she had to seat herself, I'm sure. <laughs> right? So now listen to this. Jesus says this in Matthew 7. It says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And, of course, he describes the storm that comes and then the house remains standing. And then in verse 26, he says, But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I will liken to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. I think it's important to note that... Um, it's right here, babe. I think it's important to note that although you don't have to do anything to get to heaven but believe, uh, if we want to live the kind of life Jesus died for us to have on earth, then we need to put into practice what we learn. And again, that's, uh, I'm coming at that from more of a, uh, a reflecting aspect than a directing aspect. I'm not saying that you just go out there and work yourself silly for Jesus so he'll be impressed. What I'm saying is just first start with what you believe. First start with what the word says, and that will rise up on its own. And, you know, some people talk about, I want to defend the gospel, praise God. Well, my thing is just let him out of the cage. He'll take care of himself. He is the Lion of Judah, after all. And so... What allows us to, to do good works and what allows us to, to, to do things that change our communities and change our world is really uh, resting in the truth, okay? So I'm just going to give you three warning signs of a rest deficiency. And we've talked a lot about this. I've talked a lot of, uh, uh, about this kind of thing with uh, uh, Colonel Bill and Robin Sick because Robin's a personal trainer and she deals with people's physicality a lot. And, and, and even in healing, even in recovering from sickness, rest has a ton to do with it. Yeah. 
much more than we know. You know, even Napoleon, uh, who I wouldn't subscribe to everything he probably said, but at one point he, he had said, six hours for the man, seven hours for the woman, and eight hours for the fool. Uh, but the point is, we need rest. And, you know, they say that one hour before midnight is better than two hours after midnight. And some of us are in the, in the habit of going to bed after midnight almost every night. And that really does wear your body down. And so here are some warning signs for the spiritual rest deficiency. And again, there's no condemnation. So if you get offended or condemned tonight, then you're going to have to sit up here till tomorrow morning until it wears off, okay? Because you can't leave here offended, ever. So number one, if you're always in crisis... If you're always in crisis, let me say it another way. If you're always under attack, and what I mean by that is you always have to talk about being under attack. Just look straight ahead. Nobody's going to know if it's you or not. (laughs) And if you're always wrapped up in some drama or strife, we'll call it, okay? Again, straight ahead. I don't know anybody's mess, so I'm not trying to, you know, I've had people run into staff members say, you know, I quit going to church because Pastor Ken was talking about me from the pulpit. (laughs) I ain't talking about you. I'm talking about me, (laughs) all right? So just take, you know, maybe maybe you need to rest more if you feel that way, okay? (laughs) You know, I think we ought to be, uh, we ought to talk about it when we're not under attack. Because I tell you what, if the devil knows what's good for him, he'll stay on us. Because we got something for him. And even on his best day, even if he had every demon in hell, he can't handle you standing on the word. There ain't a hundred demons that could handle you. You know, we get so devil conscious and attack conscious or, or, or really, you know, just always in crisis. Or we just sort of get into this bad habit that if there's not some drama going on, we got to stir some up. And we got to break out of that. And rest is the way. Watch this in Psalm 91, 1 and 2. It says, He or she who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. Somebody say, my God. My God. Be personal about your God. When you talk to people, say, my God, my Daddy, my Savior. You know, and again, I'm enamored, and I've been this way for months and months and months since I did those teachings on Wednesday night called Abba, the God called Abba. Because until Jesus came to earth, nobody ever called him daddy. And when Jesus came, he only ever called him daddy to bring to you and I the revelation that he is our daddy. That's what Abba means. And you know, frankly, before I got set free uh, to, the, to, to the grace message, I used to get irritated by people that referred to him as Abba. Because I'm a military man. You know, you stand at attention when the colonel walks on deck. You shout, attention on deck. You stand to your feet when the general is on board, you know, whatever. Um, and so I had this kind of feeling that, you know, you need to reverence God, And I mean, I think it's all good to stand up on your feet when Jesus walks in. But the bottom line is, he's your daddy. When's the last time you acted all rigid and uptight when your daddy was there? And so what we need to do is recognize that he is a place of our rest. He is rest. He is the Sabbath. You know, uh, we had such an amazing Easter service last last year. We did six uh, uh, services over the weekend. And... um, so are we doing seven or eight this year? 
We're doing seven, including the video one. So we're doing five, six. Yeah, because we did Saturday night. So we did six last year. And uh, I mean, it was just straight up awesome. You know, it's not me. It's God anyway, so I can brag on it. And there was a guy who said to me after, well, you know, you still have to keep the Sabbath. I almost slapped him. I thought he was having some kind of an event, a cardiac event. I thought, you didn't just hear that and come up with that. Some people you just can't argue with. You know what I'm saying? It's got to be God touching somebody's heart. Let me tell you something. Yeah, we do need to keep the Sabbath. And you better if you want to live fully. But here's how you do it. You rest in Jesus every day. Not just one day. You get seven days out of him now. 24-7. Every moment of every day ought to be a day of rest. Ought to be a day of refreshing. Ought to be a day where you just feel awesome. Every day is Saturday. Every day is summer vacation. Every day you're going to the beach. Every payday is a king's ransom. Every meal a feast. We're talking about resting in Jesus. The second thing that could be a warning sign for a rest deficiency is that we can't talk to people. We can't talk to people. Let me say it a little differently. We're afraid to address concerns with people. We're afraid to confront. We have an issue with it. We, we don't like to confront, and so therefore we just bury stuff and, and, and let it fester and then get worse and worse when all we have to do is address things in love. Just say, hey, listen, man, or, or, you know, I, I'm kind of sensing this or that or whatever, and then you just have a conversation. And as long as the root is love and not that we wait too long to where we're angry, right? Because some people only confront when they're mad and not when they're just able to talk about it and have a conversation about it. Um, you know, I heard a story one time of this preacher. He went to this family's home and, and uh, the wife made a nice big meal and the husband was there and the husband never went to church and the son was there and, and, and then the lady and, of course, the preacher. And so they started eating and the preacher said it was the worst food he had ever eaten in his life. And so, sure enough, you know, two or three minutes into it, the lady said, well, uh, pastor, what do you think about the whatever it was? And he said he almost lied. He wanted to lie. He wanted to say, oh, it's wonderful. But he said something rose up on the inside of him. (laughs) And he wasn't allowed to lie. And he said, ma'am, I don't want to be disrespectful, but this is the worst food I've ever had in my life. And her husband jumps up and said, I told you he was a man of God. All all them other people that have been coming in here, a bunch of liars. I told you he was a man of God. You just don't know how you can set somebody free if you just tell the truth, right? (laughs) And that's probably why the man wasn't going to church, because he didn't want to hear from a bunch of liars. Galatians 6.1, Paul says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. This is new covenant. 
This is after the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm telling you, I've had people uh, over the years that I've been associated with that told me, you ought to bring those people down front. And you ought to expose them. And I said, I'll tell you one thing, man. Uh, Life is short and eternity is long. And as long as you know me, I will never do that to anybody. I didn't even have a revelation of grace. That was like five or six years ago. I said, but there's one thing I will never do is that. You tell me when Jesus did that. Now, he talked about that before he died. And I haven't even looked back over that stuff because I don't believe I need to because I got Galatians 6.1. And you should never let an obscure meaning discount a very clear meaning. You can always go back and study it out, but what my guess is, is Jesus was talking to a bunch of stiff-necked, religious, judgmental Pharisees, and he was just kind of checking them with all of that. The bottom line is that Paul said, if you're spiritual, if you're so mature, then you ought to be about restoration in gentleness, not heavy-handed judgment and causing people, you know, to, 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 you know, think that you don't have any issues. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now, it says you must do. You don't have to do this to be saved. Understand this. But to be in re- relationship with people, you have to do this. And so we need to understand that there's a delineation in the word. There, there is this dichotomy between what you have to do to get saved and what you have to do to maintain relationship and live the life that Jesus provided for you to live. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's different, you know. And I think sometimes we just start lumping things together and we miss the true meaning in the heart of the gospel. So third and lastly, being self-centric is an indicator of a lack of rest. Just like if you were sleep-deprived, you would have certain issues in your body. Certain stresses would begin to take effect on you. Well, the same way with spiritual, uh, uh, you know, lack of rest as well. So if we become self-centric, let me explain what that means. If you have a consumer approach to your church, i.e., what's in it for me? Why, you know, I go to church so I can get something for me. Now, I believe you ought to be able to get something at church. I believe in that. But I also believe that we need to see ourselves more missional than that. Like, who is God going to connect me with today? Here's another way to put this. Do you have any friends at church? (laughs) Just straight ahead. Maybe your friend didn't come tonight, you know what I mean? But if you can say, yes, I feel like if I don't like the music, if I don't like the word, if I don't like this or if I don't like that, then I'm going to be offended or I'm just, you know, maybe I won't go back or whatever. That's called being a consumer, right? Instead of somebody that's there to give, we have this idea of taking. And and, and what I'm saying is if you're there, just hang in there. Don't just jump off and run away, but realize that you're in a process of maturity that's all predicated on your ability to rest in the truth of the gospel. And, and then God will move you past that because I think just like little kids, we all 
we all grow beyond that. I mean, a little child, as soon as they graduate out of the playpen down onto the floor and they realize that the kids out there are bigger, stronger, they bite harder, they slap harder, and they always want the toy that the little one wants, what does the little one want to do? Crawl right back into the playpen where it's nice and safe. And that's how we can be as Christians sometimes. It's like, oh, you know, I could go talk to those people, but they're probably weird, and then they're going to think I'm weird if they know me, and so I'll just be safe and not do it. And so that's just playing into the lies of the devil because you're really awesome, and people are going to like you no matter what. And look at this, this whole idea of resting. In Mark 6, uh, verse 31, Jesus said this, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Now, if you know this chapter, right after they came aside with him and rested a while, he went out and was moved with compassion because he was rested in the Father. So he was able to have compassion for the people. When you start talking about preachers and, and, and employers and employees that are burning out, they don't have any compassion because they're not resting. So Jesus comes out. He has compassion. He looks over the multitude. That's when he said the, the harvest is uh, you know, plentiful, but the laborers are few kind of thing. And then he turned right around and said to the disciples who had rested a while, Give them something to eat. They were like, I don't have anything to eat. And he said, oh, yes, you do. You know how I know? Because you rested a while with me. And that's when they fed the 5,000. With what they had. Not with what they didn't have. If you and I will get into the habit of turning aside, even when you think you don't have time, and rest a while with him, you will always have more than you need to give out to other people. You'll have more emotionally, you'll have more physically, you'll have more mentally, because that's what this is. When you're ministering into the lives of people, it will drain you in all these areas that don't seem very spiritual, but they're very spiritual when you can't function in your life as a life giver because you're so depleted. And now you're just doing it in your own power, and now your doing has become a burden and not a blessing. So we need to be in the habit of turning aside to rest a while. Watch this, and we're going to close with this in Hebrews 4.10. For he who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. I read that to you on Sunday morning. It's funny how Romans and James are sort of interlacing here right before our eyes. Friends, God wants us to carry an uncompromised gospel to a compromised world. A world that knows only bad news to take the good news to them. To let them know that even in the midst of your sin, Jesus died for you and God loves you completely and so do we. Let me tell you something. It's time for the message of the gospel. The religion, the control, the manipulation, the judgmentalism, the, the, the guilt, the condemnation, it's over. It is over. And it's happening like a ripple all over the world. And people are coming to Jesus because of it. And you and I are part of that. The very first message of the, of, the, of the church was the gospel of grace. And we went through everything. Healing, apostolic, uh, prophetic, you know, you name it. 
and it was all, not that it was bad, but there were just different influences over the years. And now here we are, right back to the simplicity that was there all along. Everything we need is bound up in this concept that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. And in that, we can rest. Amen? Let's give the Lord a shout tonight.